Proverbs chapter number 4. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 20, and uh, I'd like to read down to verse number 27. Proverbs chapter number 4, verse number 20. The Word of God says, My son, attend to my words, incline thine ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart. For they are life unto those that find them, and health to all their flesh. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Put away from thee a froward mouth, and perverse lips put far from thee. Let thine eyes look right on, and let thine eyelids look straight before thee. Ponder the path of thy feet, let all thy ways be established. Turn not to the right hand nor to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be in this place, Lord. I'm so encouraged and blessed to be around your people, Lord. Your people are my people. And by the grace of God, I've been made a part of the family of God and family with all these blood washed that know you and the free pardon of your grace and the fellowship of your spirit. Lord, I'm just so grateful to be in the house of God tonight. I pray that you'd take the precious word of God and use it, Lord, in my heart first and foremost, but in the heart of every person here, that you would have complete and perfect liberty to speak to our hearts and to deal with us according to thy will. Lord, we do pray for these requests that have been given. Meet with them, Lord, in all patience and in all providence, and we'll be sure to thank you for what's accomplished. Lord, I love you, and I thank you for loving us, and I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. There is a New Testament verse that I'm reminded of when I read our text tonight. And there is a theme throughout our text. I don't know if you noticed it, but let me read this New Testament passage. And I believe it might occur to you in the reading of it. Paul, when writing to the church at Rome, said this in Romans chapter number 12. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul, writing to the church at Rome, reveals to the believer that we are not to view our lives as merely a journey or an endeavor, but rather as a sacrifice of the efforts and actions and energies of ourselves unto the Lord. In other words, you are to look at your life not merely as something that you are expending for your own interest and for your own pleasure and for your own ambitions, but rather you are to view your life as a currency, as a, as a gift, as a sacrifice that you are giving unto the Lord because He is worthy and because He deserves our very attention and devotion. And when I read in Proverbs chapter number 4, I'm reminded of this similar terminology. Now, before we get into the message, I want to read to you a passage out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Many of you could quote this. But Paul talks about this activity of, of, of yielding our bodies unto the Lord. And the simple question is this, what exactly does that mean? What does God ask of us? What does God expect out of us? Is God wanting us to open our veins and bleed for Him? I don't believe so. 
Is God wanting us to spend every waking moment and hour of the day in some active service of, of the New Testament church? While there's certainly nothing wrong with that and there's worse ways that you could spend your time, I don't believe that's what God expects of every single believer. Is God suggesting that we should somehow, uh, you know, uh, mutilate and, and, and abuse ourselves to prove our devotion as some religions do? No, I don't think God's glorified by that. But Paul does tell us what this means to present our bodies a living sacrifice. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, What, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, here it is, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. Paul says we are not our own. We don't belong to ourselves. We don't have a right to do with our lives and our bodies what we choose to do. So, you know, that's a really common mantra in society today. That it's, it's, and of course the abortion crowd uses it. I should I'd rather say the pro-death crowd. The pro-death crowd, I shouldn't even say pro-death crowd because they don't want rapists and murderers put to death. The pro-death of children crowd, uh, their mantra is my body, my choice. But, you know, a believer, and, and, and that's naive even for a lost person, uh, but certainly for a believer, that's anathema. I mean, it's blasphemy to suggest that my body's mine. I can do anything that I want with it. If you're saved by God's grace, your body is, is definitionally not your own. You don't belong to you. You have been bought with a price. And Paul says in light of that, in response to that reality, What does God want out of us? Well, here's what he wants. He wants us to glorify him in our body and in our spirit, which are God's. When Paul talks about presenting our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, what he's saying is we ought to live in such a fashion that we don't view our lives as something that we consume for our own interest and pleasure, but rather as something that we yield unto God, that we might give glory unto him, that men might see our lives and know there's a living God and that he's worth knowing and worth living for. I'm reminded of those New Testament passages when I read what Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 4. And it immediately is, my attention is drawn to the uh, body uh, language, if we want to use, I don't guess that's the right way to say it, the language reflecting body parts that Solomon uses in our text. I want you to notice it again. In verse 20, he says this, incline thine ear unto my sayings. In verse 23, he says, keep thy heart. With all diligence. In verse 24, he says, put away from thee a froward mouth. In verse 25, he says, let thine eyes look right on. And in verse 26, he says, we are to ponder the path of our feet. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight, presenting our bodies unto the Lord. Now, I want us to look at this text and think about five ways that God wants us to serve him with our physical body, with the physical vessel he has put us in, and how we can glorify God in the way that we live. Notice the first one with me tonight. Look with me at verse 20 again. It says, My son, attend to my words. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart, for they are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. Say, preacher, how can I yield my body a living sacrifice unto the Lord? Well, I would say, number one tonight, we must present our ears to the Lord. The first thing God asks for is for our hearing, for our ears. Now, I don't think that's by accident. 
Because I would say this, that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And every work that God does in a man's life, it doesn't begin with the heart. It begins with the hearing. Now, you you understand and I understand tonight that as we speak of this, we could be speaking of a person audibly hearing. But more than that, we're speaking of somebody perceptively receiving the word of God that's given unto them. Whether that be the written word or whether that be the preached word or the word of the soul winner. Whether they may be even deaf in their hearing, but they can read and they can receive the truth of God as it's given. What we could maybe say is that what Solomon's pointing to is the hearing of an individual, that we have to be willing to hear the Lord and listen to the Lord if God is going to get glory out of our lives. You know, one of the main problems with modern Christianity is Christians that don't listen to God. They don't listen to his word. They don't listen to the truth of his word. And a great many of them are bombarded with his word on a regular basis. And they might even hear his word in the sense of 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 observing it or, or or interacting with it. But as far as internalizing it and receiving it and responding to it, a great many Christians' lives are perpetually stunted and their ability to give glory to God is perpetually trumped by their unwillingness to listen to God's word. How can we give glory to God? Well, I'd say, number one, uh, we've got to present our ears so that we can hear God's word. He says, my son, attend to my words. What does that mean? Well, here's how we'd say it. We'd say, pay attention, pay attention. I find as my children get older, I don't say pay attention less. I'm saying pay attention more. I didn't think that was how this is supposed to go when you're a parent. I mean, you know, I got one of them's nine years old. He's supposed to be raised by now, right? And uh, I'm forever having to say to him, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. Here's what Solomon says to his son. He says, Rehoboam, pay attention. Here's what God says to his children. He says, children, pay attention. In other words, we have to yield our attention unto the word of God. A great many people struggle for God to work in their life because they never give any attention to the word of God. They don't read it. They don't read it. If you're not reading the Bible, you're not going to get much help from the Lord or from anyone else. You've got to read the word of God. You've got to spend time reading it. But not only do you read it, you receive it. He says this, incline thine ear unto my sayings. Now, what does that mean to incline thine ear? It's almost like a person cut their ear and bent down so that they could hear clearly what's being said. And what he's saying is this, that if we want God to get glory out of our lives, we have to be receptive to the truth of God's word. We can't tune out. We can't zone out. We can't check out. We have to be in the word of God and be paying attention to the word of God when it's presented to us. I grew up in a Christian school. I grew up in a Bible believing church. I learned how to ignore preaching. Because when you grow up in those environments, you do. I mean, you learn how to ignore preaching. You learn how to sit and tune it out. You learn how to do other things. I can't tell you the times I've seen even adults in church. I'm talking about when I've pastored, but I'm talking about even when I was a kid, completely tuned out and zoned out of the preaching of the Word of God. And then the audacity to walk away and say, well, I didn't get nothing out of that. Well, no, you didn't get full because you didn't eat. The reality is we have to receive the Word of God if God's going to help us. And how dare we charge God with not feeding us at His table when we didn't even so much as pick up a fork or a knife. We've got to hear God's word, but then it's not just to hear it. Look at verse 21. He says, let them not. Now, what's them? Well, that's Solomon's sayings. But we understand they're not just Solomon's sayings because we're reading the words of the Holy Ghost. These are God's sayings, too. And he says of his sayings, let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart for their life unto those that find them and health 
to all their flesh. You know, funny thing about that last phrase, they are health to all their flesh. You stop and think about medical advice. And I do think we live in a society that's over-medicated. And I think we live in a society where doctors are treated as though they ought to be able to fix everything. But I would also state this, that any sort of medical help does not help you just by hearing it. You've got to also heed it. And with the word of God, it's not enough to hear it. You've got to also heed it. If we want the word of God to be health to our flesh, then much like the advice that medical counsel would give that it's not enough to just have listened to it and heard it and received it, you have to apply it to your life. So likewise, the word of God is only going to have a meaningful effect if we apply it in our lives. This is not a speculative endeavor. This is not an academic exercise, this thing of preaching. This is something the world just can't wrap its mind around. They don't understand what you're doing here on a Wednesday night. They don't know why you'd take your precious time after you're exhausted after a work day and and claw your way and climb your way through traffic to get here on a Wednesday night because to them, preaching is an academic endeavor. It's part of the reason when they shut all the churches down said, why I just have church on YouTube? Why I just have church on Facebook? They were shocked when there's people said, no, that ain't the same. Now, I will say this for a lot of churches, it was the same. But it shouldn't have been the same. And it wasn't a replacement and it couldn't have been a replacement because what we're doing is not just an academic exercise. You're not just listening to a lecture. You're actively engaging in the receiving of the preached word of God. And part of that is receiving it and letting the spirit of God work that into your heart and mind such that it applies to your life and that you respond in obedience. If you're going to give glory to God in your body and in your life, you're going to have to present your ears to him. But then look at verse 23 he says this. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. So yielding my body unto the Lord, number one, involves presenting my ears. But number two, it means I must protect my heart. Now, we understand that the term heart is being used figuratively here. It's not talking about the fleshy organ that pumps in a person's body. But we also understand that by dint of being God's creation, God has given us a soul whereby we acknowledge him and know him and can worship him and can interact with him. And that's really what Solomon has at mind, the inner life of a human being. And he says that we are to protect that heart and protect that inner life and be careful and be cautious with it. Notice two things he points to. Number one, he points to the diligence of guarding our heart. He says, keep thy heart with all diligence. It's not an easy thing to keep your heart. It's not an easy thing to keep your heart in the right condition. The flesh doesn't want to stay in a right condition. And it's not easy to keep your heart with all diligence. So what does it involve? Well, when I think of keeping your heart, I sort of think of two sides of, of one coin. For one thing, I think about keeping our heart from something. When you keep something, you are guarding it or you are protecting it. Now, anything you protect, you protect it from things and you protect it for things. And our heart has to be kept from some things. What are some things we ought to keep our heart from? Well, I would say, number one, distractions is something we ought to keep our heart from. There are things can distract you from the Lord. There are things can get your eyes off of him. Worries in life can do that. Troubles in life can do that. Ambitions in life can do that. And certainly sin can distract us from the Lord. I would say distractions we ought to keep our heart from. I'd say we ought to keep our heart from doubts. 
Now, there's sort of a funny attitude towards this idea of doubts. Some people would claim that it's just uh, sort of a, a nascent quality and trait of the human condition, us being fallen. And others would suggest that they are somehow malevolent and, and wicked and, and, and unhealthy. And you say, preacher, which do you believe? And I say, yes, both. <laughs> I do believe it's human to doubt. But I don't believe that God give us and saved us by his grace so that we could just act human. I believe it's natural to doubt. And anybody that struggles with doubts, I, I don't cast aspersions on them. I understand it's human to have doubts, to doubt the Lord and to doubt His promises and to doubt His Word. I understand that. But nor should we coddle it or condone it or make it as though it is an acceptable thing. It's not okay to doubt the Lord. We shouldn't doubt Him. And we ought to keep our heart from doubting God. If you're not careful, you will yield your life to nothing but doubts. There are people that live their lives in a perpetual state of fear, worrying that things are getting ready to fall apart. Why don't we trust God? God's never failed. Don't doubt the Lord. We ought to keep our heart from doubts. We ought to keep our heart from discouragement. Likewise, there's some that have a very sympathetic attitude towards discouragement, mostly those that have been discouraged. Amen. And I would say this, that certainly I've been discouraged and you've probably been discouraged. And I, again, I think it's human to be discouraged, but I don't think it's healthy to be discouraged. And I do think while we all go through seasons of discouragement, there is a certain point in that season well, where it takes willful complicitness to remain discouraged. In other words, as we dwell upon the promises of God, and you've maybe never experienced this. You probably haven't because you're more spiritual than me. But there's been times I wasn't done being miserable yet. And shame on me. I mean, it wasn't the infirmity of my flesh that was causing me to be discouraged. It was pridefulness and it was it, it, it was self-pity and it was petulance and, and it was smallness on my part. What a shame that is. So we ought to keep our heart from these things. But then if we keep our heart from something... We are naturally keeping it for something. What should we keep our heart for? Well, I would say, number one, we ought to keep our heart for the Savior. We ought to make sure we love the Lord and stay in love with Jesus. The uh, church at Ephesus went astray when they left their first love. Something distracted their heart away from the Lord. And most of your problems, spiritual problems that you face in your life, will be resolved if you'll just fall in love with the Lord and stay in love with Him. I'm not saying you'll never have struggles, but I'm saying you'll save yourself from a great many crises in your life if you'll just love him above all else. We ought to keep our hearts for the scripture. We ought to love the word of God and keep an appetite for it. We ought to keep our heart for service, man. We ought to never get tired of using our life to give glory unto God. And I think we ought to keep our heart for souls. I think we ought to never get to the place it doesn't move us. And God help me, I'm guilty of it. But we ought to never get to the place that a, a lost sinner on his way to hell doesn't move us. He points to the diligence of guarding our heart, but then he points to the importance of it. Why is it so important? Well, he tells us, he says, for out of it are the issues of life. The most important things in your life relate to your heart and what you do with your heart. In the heart is that which defines a man. Luke chapter number 6 says this in verse 45, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. What you yield your heart to you will soon become. Not only defines a man, but it defiles a man that which is in his heart. That's what Christ said in Mark chapter 7. He said, That which cometh 
out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. What you let in your thought life will eventually manifest in your actions and in your outside life. So he talks about our heart. We must protect our heart. But then in verse 24, he says this, put away from thee a froward mouth and perverse lips put far from thee. God says there's some things in our in our language and in the way that we talk and communicate that don't give glory to God. And we must purge our mouth if we are to glorify him with our body. What do we purge our mouth of? Well, the first thing he says is a froward mouth. Put away from thee a froward mouth. Now, what does that mean, a froward mouth? Well, the word means crooked, crooked. I'd say this, we need to purge from our mouth crooked words. What does it mean by crooked? Well, not quite straight, not quite true, not quite factual, not quite honest. I would say this, how can we glorify God if we're not honest people? You understand that a Christian has no reason to ever not be honest. God in heaven won't hold our sins against us. He is the one that judges us. He is the master to whom we answer. What cause should we ever have to lie? You say, preacher, you've never told a lie. Sure, I have. In fact, I'll tell one right now. I've never told one. Sure, I have. And sure, you have. But we have no excuse to. We have no cause to. Say, but preacher, you don't know what it would cost me. I know it'll cost you far more to tell a lie than it would to tell the truth. Put away our crooked words, but then corrupt words. He says, perverse lips put far from thee. I'll tell you this, two things that bring shame to the Lord is a lying Christian and a lewd Christian. A lying Christian and a lewd Christian. We live in a perverted world. We live in a world where all manner of debauchery and all manner of depravity has been normalized. We're seeing it in young people's lives over and over and over again. You know, part of the push that they have in, in public schools and, and in even some private schools to uh, push sexual confusion on young people. You know why they do that when they're so young? Because they've not hit puberty yet. And they're confused. They don't understand. They enjoy spending time around other people that are the same gender because they ain't figured out that the other gender is interesting yet. And they try to get to them at a young age and confuse them and warp their minds and try to condition them to all manner of perverseness and corruptness and wickedness in this world. You know, part of the reason we're salt and light is we don't talk and think and act that way as the people of God. You say, well, preacher, what if a Christian does? Then that's double shame upon them. How could we glorify God if we have corrupt words? So we've got to purge our mouth. But then verse 25, he tells us we have to position our eyes. He says, let thine eyes look right on and let thine eyelids look straight before thee. Now, both of these phrases have the idea of looking straight ahead. And Solomon says we've got to keep our eyes focused on the right things in life if we're going to glorify God. What does he mean in these two phrases? Well, the first speaks of an eye of focus. Look right on. He will speak about this again in verse 27 when he'll say, turn not to the right hand nor to the left. In other words, if we're going to glorify God, we've got to keep focus in our life. That doesn't mean we don't have interests. Doesn't mean we don't have hobbies. Doesn't mean that our, our life is just one long preaching service. I know you feel like that sometimes. Amen. But. Uh, it doesn't mean that our life is just one long preaching service, but what it does mean is this. We ought never in our lives lose focus of what the purpose for which we're living is. 
I said it earlier, but I'm going to say it again. Uh, distracted Christians are killing Christianity. They've got every, I mean, their, their interests are eclectic and diversified to everything in the world except Jesus Christ. And they have, through activity and busyness, crowded out the service of God and the love of the Lord. They're, they're running a thousand different directions, committed to a thousand different things with no commitment left over to Christ. What a shame that is. What does that say to the world? Well, it says to the world he's not worthy of being our number one. It tells us that he's that he's not worthy. It tells the world he's not worthy of being the main focal point of our lives. It tells the world that he is on a competing level with all of our other interests. It doesn't mean that God minds you having interests, but don't lose your focus in life. He speaks of an eye of focus. But then I was interested in this second phrase. He says, let thine eyelids look straight before thee. I even looked it up carefully. I, I, I wanted to be sure in what I, I was reading here that, that it's the way I understood it. And it is. It's, it's, it's exactly what it ought to be. Thine eyelids. Isn't that interesting? When are your eyelids looking anywhere? Your eyelids are only looking somewhere when your eyes are closed. In other words, right now I'm looking with my eyes. Now I'm looking with my eyelids. What strange language that is. But if you imagine someone that is traveling, here's a way we could describe it. If a person has their eyes set straight in front of them and they are open, they have an eye of focus. They are traveling by focus and by sight. But if they close their eyes and continue on that path, they're no longer traveling by sight. Now they're traveling by faith. I would say this, that in our life, if we're going to glorify God, we've got to have an eye of focus, but we also have to have an eye of faith. We have to let our perspective and our worldview be dictated, not by what we see, but by what God declares to be true. The path is straight, but not because we see it as straight, but because God says it's straight. The Word of God lays for us a straight path to walk upon. And there's going to be times you won't understand it. But if you're going to glorify God, you can't walk by sight. You'll have to walk by faith. So he tells us that we must, in our lives, we're going to glorify God. We've got to present our ears and protect our heart, purge our mouth and position our eyes. But finally, in verse 26 and 27, he tells us we must ponder our feet. He says, ponder the path of thy feet. Let all thy ways be established. Turn not to the right hand nor to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. In other words, he says you need to think about where your feet are. And where your feet are going. I wonder how often we think to ourselves whether our path is glorifying God. What does he say about it? Number one, he says we ought to be studying our path. Ponder the path of thy feet. Think about the direction you're going in your life. Then he says this, let all thy ways be established. You know, oftentimes when you are plotting a course, you might assess and consider several different paths. But before you set out, you determine yourself upon a right course and you establish your path. Used to, we, and now everything's GPS and everything's Google. But, uh, you know, we used to, and some of y'all no doubt remember when you used to print directions out. Do you remember that? Some of y'all even got maps hanging around, amen? My wife, she's a map fiend. She loves a map, man. She loves big atlases and stuff. I remember back when internet, like, you know, uh, map things on the internet got big. I, I still remember printing out my course on, on MapQuest. It's funny, even today we'll say check MapQuest. I don't even think MapQuest exists anymore. But we still say check MapQuest. I don't know why that is. Y'all are looking at me like a calf staring at a new gate. Have I grown a third eye or something? 
Don't act like you didn't used to do that. And uh, we would set a course. Now all that stuff course corrects as you're driving. But used to, you'd set a course, you'd establish your way. In other words, you'd determine that you knew the right course to go, that you were headed in the right direction. What does Solomon mean when he describes this? He's saying this, stop and think about your life and make sure you're headed on the right path. I'd say it this way, find the will of God and make sure you're in it. Find the will of God and make sure you're in it. Look, consider the direction you're going in your life. There's been times in my life where I've had to run with eyes closed into something because I knew that it was the wrong thing to do. But wisdom, prudence, honesty, and confidence should allow us to examine our decisions and see whether they be the will of God. Why would we be scared of finding the will of God? Unless we were afraid we wouldn't have the courage to follow it. I think we ought to study our path. And then, man, this is simple. He talks about staying on the path. He says, turn not to the right hand nor to the left. Then he says, remove thy foot from evil. Now, that's interesting language, isn't it? He just got through saying, turn not to the right hand or the left. Then he says, remove thy foot from evil. In other words, he could be saying, stay where you're at. And then in the next breath saying, but move somewhere else. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying this, find the right path. Let it be established in your heart. Stay on it. Don't turn to the right hand or the left. And if you do that, you'll remove your foot from evil. In other words, there's safety on the path. There's safety on the path. We find the will of God and walk in the will of God. And that's the surest way to keep our feet from evil. I think sometimes we try to make this thing of of being successful at life, whatever that means, as though it's some great mystery. But for the child of God, it's simple. Listen, the old men of God used to say that success is finding the will of God and doing it. And I used to think what that meant is if you found the will of God and did it, that is success. Well, there's truth to that. But it is equally true that if you want to be successful, find the will of God and do it. The best thing you can do for your life is find the will of God and obey it. You say, well, preacher, I won't always understand, or it might take me a direction I don't want to go. Well, that may be true, but I'd rather go a direction I don't want to go with God than go a direction I want to go without Him. My life will be far greater mess going in my own direction, in my own wisdom, than it would be to go with God. You say, preacher, how can I honor the Lord in my life? Well, here's how you can honor Him with your ears. You can present them to Him to hear and to heed the Word of God. Here's how you can honor Him with your heart. You can protect it. You can keep it from some things and for some things. You can purge your mouth of crooked words and corrupt words and make sure your your uh, language and your conversation glorifies the Lord. You can position your eyes, the eye of focus and faith, and serve the Lord and keep your eyes on Him. And you can ponder your feet and make sure you're in the will of God, doing the will of God, on the path of the will of God. See, I don't think it's quite so abstract. I think God's saying this, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I want to give you an opportunity. God touched your heart to respond to him. Wouldn't be a surprise. Preach five points, different things. Wouldn't be a surprise if one of those touched your heart, your life. Something going on that maybe nobody knows about but you know about. Why don't you come and meet the Lord in the altar and let him have his will and way this evening. Father, bless this invitation. Pray that you glorify your son. Glorify yourself in this. And Lord, I pray that your people would respond in obedience to you. Lord, I love you. And I ask it in Christ's name.